Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling stories of the year today. Because it is, mercifully, mercifully, uh, almost the end of 2020. Uh, A lot of folks are already out on vacation or winding up their years. Some of you are busier than ever. Uh, depending on what business you're in. If you're in the smoked salmon or fresh salmon or lobster or shrimp sector, then maybe you barely have time to sneak away and grab uh, a bite to eat and listen to this podcast. But for most of us, uh, we're beginning to think about 2021, and it's right around the corner. Hopefully, new uh, and much, much better days ahead of us. I am here today with Rachel Mutter in Kuala Lumpur. Hello, Rachel. And we are going to dive in and discuss the stories that shaped 2020. Um, We've been rolling out our end-of-year look-backs, focusing on all the range of different species and sectors. So we've been looking at the top feed stories, the top uh, shrimp, salmon, whitefish, uh, commentaries. Um, and, and trying to drill down and just, uh, both for our reader's sake and our own sake, get an understanding of just what the hell happened beyond COVID. Um, no question. That's what hung over all of our heads and almost everything that, uh, happened in the seafood industry had some element of COVID related to it. And that's just the world that we, the world that we live in. However, um, COVID brought with it some significant changes, and certainly, um, as we drill down more, uh, many of those changes are going to carry on into 2021. But Rachel and I wanted to examine a few of those as we end the year and talk about um, talk about what uh, what really grabbed the headlines and what really uh, moved the needle in 20. 20- 20. So, Rachel, uh, I'm going to give you the difficult job of starting us off. Um, you know, again, I, I think it's, again, fair to say that COVID was perhaps the story. But, you know, looking beyond that, there were a lot of a lot of sub stories underneath that. So, um, yeah, start us off with some of the ones that uh, that jumped out for you. There have been winners and losers this year. I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that we've seen more change. Um, we've seen more change inflicted on the seafood industry this year than we maybe have in the last ten years. You know, it's been extraordinary, and I think what comes out of it next year will be a, a different industry. You know, even even with vaccines and even with things supposedly returning to some some kind of normality, whatever whatever that is, um, then I think I, I think seafood and, and food in general has changed forever um, and the way companies do business has changed forever so for the for the better and for the worse but I guess I guess what I've seen this year is a massive amount of resilience from companies um, they've had to switch markets I suppose it has primarily been one of the big the big changes markets have been shutting down and opening up and the unpredictability of those markets and, and the lockdowns in them has has been must have been incredibly hard to deal with for companies um, and and we've seen companies pivot from from food service to retail uh, we've seen them come up with new products we've seen them um, send their products by different routes to different markets I mean it's sort of been incredible to watch how quickly a lot of companies have changed their strategy and have actually managed to sort of cope and at least tread water this year um, in in terms of in terms of doing business so I think that's been sort of 
that's been an interesting theme of the year. So, uh, you know, to, to, to be resilient, you have to have a staff that's flexible and ready to be resilient. And that's one of the things that stood out uh, to us and maybe where we'll get started, Rachel, is on executive changes. You know, I, I would have thought in March when the lockdowns began and when companies really started to be hit by uh, coronavirus um, and really, especially those that dealt in food service, I thought we would see effectively a hiring freeze. I didn't think people would be moving around. I thought everyone would hunker down, stay in their existing jobs. Um, if anything, a lot of people would lose their jobs and there'd be kind of a glut of talent out there. What was interesting is actually we saw a lot of really talented executives, um, moving to other places. And I find that First off, I think that takes a lot of a lot of guts to be able to go from one you know job where you've been there for a long time and you've been um, built up your reputation to go somewhere else. So there were you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of kind of surprising shifts that we saw. Um, you know, uh, one of uh, one of our, our colleagues in the uh, in the headhunting sector. Uh, has said that he's been inundated with uh, with applications as well of people looking for changes, and I think, you know, I, I on the one hand that is uh, surprising, but on the other hand, you know, I maybe change makes everybody think about uh, what else they could be uh, could be doing. But um, I would say, you know, some of the really really big ones were uh, Volker Kunsch from uh, Sanford departing. I certainly that was a big surprise for for me. Um, I think for a lot of people, um, but a lot of shifts. You know, a lot of there were some retirements in there. Um, you know that that were uh, a bit of a surprise as well. But um, but you saw a lot of C-suite changes. Multi-export named a new CEO. Uh, we had people, a lot of people joining private equity groups. Um, so there was just a, a big big shift going on, uh, kind of all over, all over the place. Um, what was your kind of takeaway, Rachel? I mean, just in, in looking at all those changes, do you see any threads, any commonalities? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's sort of surprised to see people moving around, I think this year, but then as you say, maybe everyone was sort of having a existential COVID crisis. Um, so I, I think that's sort of part of it, as you say, sort of people going, Oh gosh, let's, you know, this is the time to do something new, you know, um, but also I think companies sort of reshaping their strategies as well. Um, and that's sort of both in a positive way and a negative way. I'm, I'm sure a lot of companies had some cost cutting to do. Um, but also, yeah, also more focus on different areas, I guess, than reshaped their, their hiring practices and, and reshaped where people were sort of best invested, I guess, in terms of their skill set. So I think that's probably what's happened this year and why it's happened. Um, I'll be interested to see next year what happened. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I think we might see some, you know, some some further job losses in the sector next year when when everything really hits. But but I don't know. Um, no, see, it's been a very interesting year in terms of in terms of people. That's for sure. I mean, especially at the top, and I think that is um, probably a sign of things to come as we we've seen more of a you know more generational shifts, which you know has been happening over the past couple of years. I would say that has accelerated to an incredible degree over the past two years in particular. Um, but the C-suite shifts have been, um, you know, really, really significant in associations and major companies. Um, 
yeah, uh, all the way down the list. So, uh, but we'll have all of those in a in a, a roundup here uh, next week, uh, and that'll be on our site for everybody to see when they get back on vacation as well. So, um, all right, shifting gears, let's talk about feed. Um, it was a crazy year for feed as well. Um, with or without COVID, it would have been a crazy year. I think the the big obvious ones were uh, were down on the raw material side. And, um, kind of the one that jumps out the most, uh, to me was the Amazon soy issue, which is still, still going on. But Rachel, you covered that pretty closely. So, um, yeah, that seemed like it was a pretty seismic for, for that, for that area. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was, it was a real theme of the year that the soy issues, um, so obviously some of the big, um, feed companies that feed into the aquaculture sector are sourcing soy um for their feed products and yes there are some contentious issues with the soy industry obviously in terms of deforestation um in brazil and there's sort of particular areas of brazil now that that some of the salmon companies um are quite focused on in terms of trying to rectify that situation and, and cargill really came under fire there this year um because while cargill aqua nutrition actually sources from from sustainable sources of soy um, the parent company has sort of come under fire. The Cargill Inc. has come under fire for, for not maintaining those same practices. So so that's been really interesting to see. And I think it's sort of part of the wider um, COVID theme, you know, of of the environment and, and this sort of realization that everyone's come to that actually how we how we treat our environment really <laughs> is going to have some serious impacts on us, some day to day impacts on us. Um, going forward if, if this year has taught us anything it, it's that so i think that's why it's sort of really being pushed this year um and we'll definitely see more of that next year you know along those same lines i was just thinking on the raw material side as well and sustainability kind of toward the end of the year we've seen uh the herring and blue whiting uh fisheries losing their msc labels uh in the north atlantic that that also has been you know, another major uh, issue uh, when it comes to uh, sustainable sourcing. Now, important to point out, that's not from overfishing, that's from politics. But that's, again, another theme is the world uh, countries getting their act together to ensure these uh, that, that things are sustainably managed. So, um, yeah, I think in the feed industry is in the, in the midst of that and going to be dealing with that, I think for, um, you know, for the coming, for the coming months. Um, but I also want to note about feed as well, Rachel is feed alternatives, which were, I think, uh, really, really, really high on the agenda this year, um, for better or for worse. I mean, I think it was really interesting to hear the different opinions from, both the producer side, the feed side, the ingredient side. Um, that's been one of the more fascinating things to watch, I think, is the promise of alternative feed ingredients. Um, and then, you know, we hit this in a couple podcasts ago, and then the uh, going from promise to practicality, which I think is, you know, those two things are a long way away. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's been an exciting year for census, as you say. A lot of investment in 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 alternative ingredients uh, that's really ramped up this year and yeah some sort of viable contenders coming to the fore so yeah it seems like that that's something that's really that's really changing and we'll see more of next year for sure yeah i mean i, I think that um it was kind of a 
it was kind of a novelty maybe 10 years ago. Um, maybe it was even longer than that. But I kind of remember early days writing about insect meal and thinking, huh, this is funny. We'll have a fly on our front page. Um, and, you know, wow, um, here we are. And suddenly that uh, it's something we pay attention to, you know, as is algae. Um, it, it, that's an interesting evolution as well. And I think it does come back to what you're talking about with, um, with COVID in part is there is a full, I think, reassessment and reevaluation of the food supply chain that is giving a lift to all these sort of food tech, uh, new ingredient, um, plant-based foods. There's another huge theme, right? Is um, that was a story that dominated as well. I think from that same, uh, for that same rationale. And again, I think, I don't think any of us, when we first saw, I can't remember who it was that debuted the, um, their uh, fake tuna at Boston. Uh, this was years ago. And I remember trying it. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but I remember trying it and thinking, haha, uh, never going to fly. And here we are with impossible foods and beyond meat. Um, some of the most valuable companies in, in food now. Yeah. And every week we're writing a story about, about a seafood company, or at least a company that, that deals in seafood, these sort of big food conglomerates investing into these plant-based, uh, plant-based techs and plant-based companies. And I, yeah, I agree for me, that's been a real surprise of the year. Well, maybe not a surprise, but it's really the speed with which that's growing. Um, it's sort of incredible. And it makes me feel, yeah, it makes me feel hopeful for seafood, but also, um, worried for seafood so I, i'm not quite sure which way it's going to go at this point i feel on one hand that that theme of um more sustainable food of less carbon emissions works in seafood's favor but <laughs> but having said that if cell-based protein and plant-based protein can sort of fill fill a void there and, and it's in enough demand then i wonder where that leaves seafood actually maybe seafood Maybe seafood had missed its chance is what I can't help thinking uh, this year a little bit. But I, I don't know. Maybe that's too negative. We'll see. It does seem, uh, I think, with all of these things, uh, with, with any early stage technology, um, the instinct, I think, is to either shrug it off or uh, dismiss it um, or, um, you know, criticize it. But then you look up and suddenly it just takes you by storm. And I think that that's one of the things that we have also, one of the lessons we've learned this year is um, just how quickly trends can catch on. Um, the speed and skill at which some of the new generations are able to communicate, I think that really... This isolation that we've all been through, I think that's only increased that. And I think in some ways, you know, I think it's been, it, it, I mean, I know it's been difficult for a lot of, um, can we say traditional people in, uh, around the world, but in, in just speaking of our sector, it's been difficult for, um, you know, think about salespeople that have been doing their job for 30 years, suddenly their whole worlds are turned upside down and 
sales are just as likely to be closed on WhatsApp as, you know, over dinner. So, uh, you know, I think that's been, mm. um, that's been kind of a, a revolution as well. And I, I think just in the way that we all communicate too, um, it, it's, it's been kind of amazing. I think earlier on, certainly I miss travel. I miss the trade shows, but I think that it's fair to say that we all have recognized like, Hmm, you know, what of that was really, really effective and efficient travel? What of our business practices were effective and efficient? And what of them were, um, you know, could have been done more easily? And we just were doing them because it was, um, you know, because we had a certain momentum of doing things a certain way. Yeah. And, and, yeah. I think what really strikes the chord with me is that our, our colleague Demi wrote a column earlier in the year about sort of millennial trends and, and those have been, and she was sort of saying that COVID will accelerate them and that has absolutely come true. I mean, I think all those things that we've been talking about sort of for the last couple of years about millennials and what it is they want. And, and we've sort of been talking about it as an industry, as something slightly removed from us. But I think COVID has just, as you say, it's sort of, it's been an accelerant for, for all those themes um, across, across everything, across sustainability, across communications, across travel across working from home across you know everything everything that we do so i think that's yeah that's been re that's really interesting and yeah businesses are going to have to adapt i think to this this new way of new way of being yeah well I, I, that it's kind of good that you cited the um you know demi's piece and kind of all these ideas that um seemed like they were coming and then all of a sudden just boom completely flipped in the matter of months and things like delivery um e-commerce for seafood that were kind of oh that's neat you know we could do some direct to consumer sales and all of a sudden that's making up 40 50 percent of our business you know so um and one of those things i think was uh land-based aquaculture which had a banner year um you know i think that uh i think intrafish has been has had a really healthy dose of skepticism about land-based aquaculture, not as a concept and not as um, something that will come to fruition, um, more the speed and uh, the speed at which it is happening and the capital that's being thrown at it with perhaps not everything being in place. So that's been, it's part of our role, right? Is to be, to be watchdogs. But I have to say that this year, it, it was it was a landmark year um, for land-based aquaculture. I mean, things changed extremely quickly. We've had, what, five IPOs on the Oslo Mercure market um, and people um, committing to major, major projects. I mean, it's it's been, this has been the, the real breakout year, it turns out, for land-based. Mm, yeah, and, and I think, we've seen sort of suppliers to commit, commit to land-based too now. You know, I think sort of up until this year, it seemed to be just these guys with their, <laughs> with their yeah, with their land-based concepts and then the rest of the industry sort of being a bit skeptical. And But this year we've seen these big deals signed with feed companies, with genetics companies, um, and it feels like things are coming together. But but as you say, we, we <laughs> skepticism, Skepticism is important here, and, and you wrote a, a column yesterday, Drew, that sort of, yeah, that, that highlighted the fact that we still 
don't really have any volumes of land-based fish on the market in any big way. And until that happens, um, it's very difficult to say whether this is going to be as big as everyone thinks it's going to be. Uh, it's definitely going to be a thing, of course. Um, but is it going to be big? Is it, or is it going to be niche? Or you know, how does that work side by side with traditional farming? Um, yeah, that still remains to be seen. I think until that fish, you know, until those volumes are harvested, until the market's accepted them, until the market's accepted the price. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it may be sooner than we sooner than we think to the speed things are moving at. Um, all right, you're rounding up uh, right now our shrimp stories, uh, which ones really uh, jumped out this year. And it was an interesting year for shrimp as as well. I think, um, you know, shrimp is heavy, heavy, heavy in the food service sector. So it did get hit um, pretty hard by all of this. Um, but in general, um, it seems like there is, uh, you know, there, there's reason to be optimistic in the shrimp, uh, the shrimp sector. One of the things I think we've seen that's a real positive is maybe we haven't quite seen the consolidation that I think we're going to see in shrimp, uh, down the line. I think there's going to be a lot of it in the coming years, but what I've noticed is we've seen a lot of tech companies coming into shrimp. Um, into regions like Indonesia and India um, to really help producers, small-scale producers, do things more efficiently, do things more sustainably, and take a little bit more control over their uh, over their process. I think that's been really, um, really positive, given that shrimp's story usually is one of uh, boom and bust, where things go, you know, <laughs> things boom, and then a disease hits and things bust. But um, yeah, that's one of my takeaways from shrimp this year. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. When I was putting together our sort of top shrimp stories of the year, um, yeah, there were obviously the themes of, of collapsing markets and unpredictability, which for the for the shrimp industry is tough because it's, it's so fragmented. It's very difficult for... Um, for these these producing countries to to shift quite as nimbly as maybe the salmon industry has done, so I think that's really really hit them hard. Um, and then politics has obviously come into play with with China being this sort of huge market for shrimp. Um, that's had all kinds of repercussions with with well, first of all their lockdowns, but then this sort of ongoing um, theme of connecting you know COVID with imported seafood. That's that's been a big issue for the for the shrimp industry. Um, so that's that's ongoing, but as you say, yeah, there's also been some really positive stories and some some drive towards new technology. We've seen CP um, setting up this this big US uh, land-based shrimp farm, uh, which is really interesting. They're a company who obviously have a lot of capital behind them and can do some really interesting things. Um, so I'm I'm really interested to see how that turns out. It's not it's not being built yet. So again, it's one of these things that's sort of still in the in the design phases. But I'll be interested to see how that turns out when when it starts being built next year. Um, and also, yeah, so in India, there's been a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Um, India's become a a huge producer of shrimp and a huge supplier to the U.S. market. And I think with that has come. Um, as you say, not really consolidation, which is interesting because I think we thought that was coming sooner rather than later, but that hasn't really happened. But what has happened, as you say, is is these startups have come in um, and they've they've got new ways of doing things. They've got technology, they've got traceability apps, um, and this is the time technology has really come to the fore. I think in this regard, you know, this 
stuff actually suddenly now can be done and it will make the world of difference to something like the Indian shrimp industry where if they can know you know where supplies are which farmers stocked how much processes will be able to source correctly the prices will be better it, it just adds some stability and that's what the shrimp industry needs it needs stability this year COVID has not given it stability in its markets but but yes the tech is coming and that will that will change things that will make vast improvements for those for those countries that that invest in it and bring it into play then they're going to be the winners of of shrimp production going forward for sure all right let's talk about salmon a bit uh i would say that it's been a roller coaster year for salmon but that is not really the apt metaphor since it's been primarily a roller coaster going down um as of week 50, um, we are now at around, on average, in week 50, about knock 41 per kilo for uh, for fresh salmon out of Norway. Um, that is that is around, uh, I believe, just doing my quick math, that's around 40% lower than week 50 in 2019. And below 2018, below 2017, I mean, it... It is it is really at levels that we haven't seen in uh, you know in in a while since um, sort of the fall of of uh, 2019 saw some dips pretty low but um, we are we are really in the doldrums and that's uh, you know I think that's been the 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 main story of salmon has been um, you know being a fresh uh, a fresh um, I guess you could say rapidly traded commodity, daily traded commodity. It's made it very tough in such a uh, such a um, volatile environment for salmon. I, I think at retail, just like with everybody else, I think retail has been great for salmon, and I think a lot of companies have figured out the key to making that work. And I think we'll see that even more in twenty twenty one. But certainly in um, in 2020, um, salmon had a salmon had a tough year. Um, you know, I think the the companies themselves, their earnings, you could see they they were uh, really hit hard. And it wasn't just prices; it was other factors as well. Um, there was there was fish health. There were um, there were kind of things all over the map that were uh, challenging. And it seems like it was a long time ago, but. Um, but you know, it wasn't too long ago that there were massive algal blooms, that there was political chaos in Chile. I mean, this has all happened around around the past twelve months. So salmon's been um, in an interesting spot. While the it will come back, and while it no doubt remains the uh, kind of flagship species for seafood um, right now, um, you know, I I think it, um, it it it's a year that that the industry wants to forget. Mm, I'd argue it's a year that the, the industry should remember. Um, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you that it's been a it's been a tough year for salmon. Um, they've had to deal with all kinds of extra costs um, in terms of you know opening up capacity for, for retail processing that they weren't prepared for in terms of finding new routes to market. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, and as you say, then there were all these sort of other incidental things with with disease and, and sea lice and. Um, all these challenges, these sort of ongoing challenges that they have. However, I think they all, you know, there's a good market for salmon, right? There's not enough salmon produced and people want to eat it. And I think that will only grow. Um, so I think long-term, 
the story for Salmon is still very good. And I think if if producers can learn from this year, you know, it, it's been a it's been a harsh change, uh, but maybe it's a change that is valuable for them going forward. If they can have a better spread of retail and food service, um, if they can have more flexibility in their markets, you know, I think some changes have been made that perhaps would have been made anyway longer term but they've had to be made very quickly over the course of 12 months which is yeah which has inflicted some some harsh realities but having said that i think maybe they're better prepared for the future now than they ever have been before moving on to the whitefish side of things um i think i think the big one this year um was was russia i think russia was the one that that um sort of captured my imagination in 2020 um, all this effort on their uh, their quota uh, system um, that's uh, that's been put in place, allowing them for new builds um, and allowing those new builds to be attached to um, to Pollock quotas um, and shore based facilities as well. I think there's question as to whether or not there's enough product to um, to allow for those plants to, to operate at full capacity. Um, fair enough questions. However, um, I think it's impossible to say that the Russian industry didn't make huge strides on value adding. Um, Russian fishery company just launched uh, or just received rather a new, uh, a new vessel capable of producing surimi. They're looking at uh, a, a new plant that's capable of producing a lot more surimi value added products. So even while the Chinese market has become really, really difficult for uh, Russia because of, um, well, you never know, there's definitely political disagreements, but certainly there's been some, uh, some, uh, some arguments that, uh, that there's been uh, COVID traces on some of the packaging out of Russia and, and that's up for, up for debate. Um, but uh, but but I think that that uh, Russia's really um, they're about to jump on the scene in a much bigger way in the Alaska Pollock sector. Um, so I'm keeping my eye closely on them. And our, our colleague Ev- Evgeny Vovchenko um, has done an excellent job uh, covering that. And by the way, we're wishing Evgeny a speedy recovery. He did get uh, COVID, uh, unfortunately, and um, and he's he's doing he's doing better, but. Um, yeah, it just just shows that um, you know this is a virulent disease and it's hitting um, pretty much everybody. We uh, everybody, all of us uh, knows. You know, there's there's somebody now in our circle um, that that's been hit by it. But uh, speedy recovery to Ev- Evgeny, uh, and in the meantime, um, you know, fantastic year of coverage on on Russia and and great uh, great things coming. I think for the the Pollock industry there. And I think that the the cod sector, in a, in a sense, was in a similar a similar spot, at least on the fresh side, as um, as salmon was. In that, um, you know, the fresh cod sector was facing um, you know facing the same kind of whims in the food service side that uh, that salmon was. And so you did see logistical challenges of getting uh, getting product to market. You did see big shifts in moving toward uh, moving toward uh, you know the the uh, the retail um, the retail sector. And so you know similarly, uh, you are seeing that prices are are down pretty sharply um, through week fifty for 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 cod versus uh, last year and in twenty eighteen. Um, much better than it was in 
2017. So people have to be have to be happy about that. Um, but but the other part of Whitefish is just looking a little bit further down to the market was the explosion in uh, frozen purchasing, and that um, that has been uh, incredible. Um, Nomad has done extremely well. Nomad owns Birdseye and Igloo and uh, and the Findus brands um, in Europe, and it's uh it's been amazing to see how consumers have taken to frozen both in North America and in Europe um pretty much around the world but um but yeah that's that's clearly been a huge boon for uh for the whitefish sector mm, I, I'd also add actually that we've seen some interesting developments in farmed whitefish um with we had we had the kingfish company um IPOing, we had Barramundi Asia looking to IPO. I mean, Barramundi is an interesting one. We had Scretting sort of add that to its um, to its tech package this year. And I, I spoke to some guys from Scretting the other day who who were quite excited about farmed Barramundi's future. Um, and of course, then there's Norcod, the uh, the Norwegian cod farmer um, who just who just harvested their first uh, sort of sample products. But again, that seems some quite hefty investment. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting time for farmed whitefish. And I think next year we'll see, we'll see more developments there for sure. Because again, it, it, it follows on this sustainability theme that we've sort of seen this year in terms of securing supplies. And um, yeah, yeah. So I just, I just flagged that up as something to watch actually. Let, let's talk a little bit about the the financial part of things uh, as well. Um, M&A investment. Um, you know, we saw this year, I think, uh, we saw around 60 deals, I believe we counted. We we just put out our uh, seafood uh, M&A roundup for the year. 60 deals. And that's pretty amazing for a year when uh, when you had the chaos that we had in the global economy um, and not far off from um, from what from what we saw in 2019, which had about um, 75, 80 deals. So that's pretty impressive. What was was quite interesting to me is you know we we've had private equity kind of kicking around for a while in the seafood sector uh we saw more private equity interest but with kind of a twist and and what i think we're seeing more is equipment services tech um we're seeing a lot of these smaller companies get the attention of um you know, private company ventures, whether it's people like uh, like Nutreco or Yamaha or Tyson or, or whatever, some of the people that we we had in our recent Seafood Investor Forum panel, um, but also some of these ESG focus funds as well. And I think what's interesting, if 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 the seafood industry can play its cards right, I think the seafood industry is might kind of fit there in that ESG mandate. Um, you know, and, and I think in particular, there's a lot of excitement around ocean investing and sustainable ocean investing. Um, so that seems like that was one kind of interesting and maybe unexpected trend that really picked up this year, uh, was sort of the, I guess we could say the, the ancillary or kind of non biomass consolidation or sort of non downstream consolidation. Yeah. I I think another thing that I thought was interesting this year, um, in terms of consolidation or sort of at least investment is, is seeing these Asian companies coming in to, um, into some of Europe's salmon producers. Um, 
that was sort of already there, there was some investment from from Chinese companies in Chile, obviously already. But this year we saw um, Japanese and Korean companies come into land-based salmon producers, which I think is is really interesting. We saw we saw Dongwan um, invest in Salmon Evolution, and, and they're looking to set up a, a huge land-based salmon farm uh, over near Seoul. Um, and then also we saw, of course, um, Misui and Maru Benny uh, invest in um, invest in Danish salmon too. So yeah, that that's been a theme of the year, and I think that's that's only going to continue because these these Asian countries are looking to su- secure supply going forward. You know, there's not enough there's not enough seafood, and they have a population that is demanding it. Um, so yeah, yeah, again, another thing to watch. Yeah, I mean, I I think just in in general on the investment front, where that's not going to stop, and I I I expected that we would have seen a little bit of a slowdown on that front, but um, but we certainly didn't. I and I think even though those kind of ancillary and equipment and and other businesses are, um, you know, that that they maybe were were some standouts. That's not to say that consolidation sort of on the downstream processing side of things didn't continue uh, at pace as well, because it certainly did. And I think we're, you know, we're getting to an area where there's still a lot of consolidation to happen in in the smaller distribution um, processing um, kind of family run operations. But I don't think we're a long, long way off um, from from some some big, big deals, um, or rather big, big consolidators coming in and, and really wrapping that up quickly. Because I think the stress and, and strain that was put on a lot of these companies in particular, if you're a food service supplier, was such that any companies that are, uh, that are uh, well capitalized, any companies that have good cash flow um, or are sitting on resources, I think they're going to feel a lot better uh, heading into 2021, um, about snapping, uh, snapping people up, but we did see it. That's not to say again, that we didn't see that in, in 2020. Um, we certainly saw a lot of, a lot of small, uh, of small groups, um, that were, uh, you know, that, that, that came in, in a, um, you know, in a, what the fuck am I trying to say? We certainly saw a lot of smaller companies that um, that either did mergers, joint ventures, or larger companies snap them up. Um, and then again, I, I think also looking at uh, I, I mentioned at the at the the top of the show that we had on the land based side we had IPOs, we had a, a lot of companies doing very well on the stock exchange. So um, even though seafood shares did, um, kind of take the same sort of low and high that the, all equities around the world did, um, things ended up, uh, things ended up okay. All things considered, you know, investors didn't, didn't flee in the way that, uh, one might've thought from the seafood, uh, the seafood sector. And in fact, these new entrants, as I mentioned, um, you know, the, the IPOs that have happened in Oslo, those companies have done very well. They had no problem raising money uh, in in recent share issues. So, um, Aqua Bounty, Kingfish, Unfjord Salmon, Salmon Evolution, Nordic Aqua Partners, those companies have done very very well, um, especially for having very very little fish. And Atlantic Sapphire, as of earlier this week, I have not checked the share price today, 
But as of earlier this week, uh, they were once again a billion dollar company. So um, yeah, seafood has people that want to uh, that want to um, put money into it for sure. And I think we can leave it there, Rachel. It has been uh, it has been an interesting year uh, for everybody. It's been um, certainly challenging. I think working from home. Um, I think we're lucky as journalists that we are able to do our jobs with, uh, with a phone and a computer. And, uh, I know not everybody is able to do that. Um, but I, I do think for, for myself and, and kind of speaking on behalf of Intrafish, um, it has been, uh, it has been a year that certainly, um, changed how we think about, uh, the industry and the types of things that, uh, are interesting for our audience and the ways that we want to serve you even better uh, going forward because things are changing. And, um, you know, I think the information uh, information world is changing very quickly as well. And, uh, and it was, uh, I don't want to say it was a, a fun year from the journalism point of view, but um, it was challenging and challenging, uh, challenging is good. Happy holidays to everybody out there. We made it through 2020 or at least we're a few days away Thanks for uh, for joining us this year and uh, inviting us into your earbuds here on the podcast. And thank you, uh, everyone out there that's uh, that reads and supports Interfish. Uh, we are are very very grateful. So have a great New Year, and we'll speak to you in twenty twenty one.